Searching for just the right job? Whether you're looking for full-time, part-time, or seasonal work, you can get started today. Amazon Jobs offers the whole package with great pay and flexible shifts that allow you to choose when and how much you work. Find a warehouse close to home and discover the role that works for you. To get your application started for an hourly job, go to Amazon.com slash apply. That's Amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is proud to be an equal opportunity employer. Hurry in to Mattress Firm's July 4th sale. Get a king bed for the price of a queen or a queen for a twin and save up to $500 on Sealy. Plus, get a free adjustable base with qualifying Sealy purchase, up to a $4.99 value. Or shop Tempur-Pedic, the most highly recommended bed in America, and save $500 on all Tempur-Breeze mattresses and get a $300 instant gift good towards sleep accessories. Only at Mattress Firm. Restrictions apply. See store or mattressfirm.com for details. Flying in the Battle of Britain, who made the biggest difference, were the Canadians, and um, that was the case in in many key key battles during the early years of the, the Second World War. If you look at the Battle of Britain, you look at Dieppe, the first attempted Allied landing in Europe. That was a largely Canadian affair, and the um, the sacrifice made by Canadians in the early years of the war was quite stupendous, really. It's quite quite amazing. Uh, some might say they they had too much of a burden to, to, to bear, but uh, certainly if you look at the um, the history of Canadian involvement in, in the uh, Allied campaigns in the early years of the Second World War in Europe, it was an astounding uh, uh, level of sacrifice and contribution. Well, you know, there's a very close tie between Canada and uh, the United Kingdom, and there always will be. And um, Yeah, I was, I was uh, very interested recently to, to read about Newfoundland and um, and how I think that's the uh, the youngest Canadian uh, do you, you wouldn't say uh, province a province yes it's a province isn't it that's, that's right Canada. Um, and I think it's only in the 1950s it became truly uh, a part of Canada it stopped being a British uh, colony um, and I I think if you go there today from what I was reading there's still a lot of uh, people in, in Newfoundland that feel closer to, to Britain than they do to Vancouver. <laughs> well, you know what, I, that, that, is, that is so true. That, that, is, that is so true, and uh, the, uh, the Canadian Maritimes have always been traditionally very, yeah. very tied to the motherland, as they like it to be called. one 877 is toll-free throughout the U.S., Canada, Alaska, and Hawaii. My name is Rob McConnell. Alex Kershaw is our very special guest and we're talking about the story of the seven Americans who, who actually um, risked everything for someone else's freedom. Not someone else, but uh, the, the free world. The seven that, that risked so much, were they ever allowed to come back home to the United States? Uh, one of the seven, a guy called Art Donahue, who's from uh, rural Minnesota, he actually came back in the spring of 1941, but he was told very clearly um, that he must not wear his RAF uniform, so, which he was very angry about and actually quite, quite bitter about. Um, so when he came back to St. Charles, Minnesota, and got off a train, mm-hmm. um, he was welcomed back by um, the, the people he'd grown up with, the town um, he'd grown up in. He was welcomed back by hundreds of people but uh, to his great annoyance, he wasn't allowed to wear his RAF uniform, and he'd been honoured um, for bravery on uh, at least 
two occasions, so he also could have been wearing medals. But because of the neutrality laws, had he been wearing the uh, the uniform of the Royal Air Force, which was a, a beautiful dark blue uniform, he, w- he could have been arrested and, uh, and thrown in jail for violating Alex, please stand by. Alex, we have to take our commercial break with the news at the bottom of the hour. Alex Kershaw is our special guest. And his website is www.alexkershaw.com. A-L-E-X-K-E-R-S-H-A-W.com. Still to come on tonight's show, Bruce McBurney with Suppressed Technology. And Ellen from Premier Psychics, who will be doing readings for one and all who give us a call at one eight seven seven five two eight eight two five five, and uh, I've just been told by our technicians here that TV is up and running. You can listen to us and watch us live from our new studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, and we're coming to you exclusively on the Talk Star Radio Network. Yeah, hey, uh, hey, Rob, David Campione with uh, Spacious Sky Productions, www.spaciousky.com, wishing Rob McConnell and all the members of the X-Zone Nation a very Merry Christmas and a wonderful New Year, and God bless everybody in the Christ light. Hear them ring, soon it will be Back to the Exxon, everyone. My name is Rob McConnell. Alex Kershaw is our special guest. And uh, by the way, for all of you who are wondering when Newfoundland did enter Confederation, it was on midnight on March the 31st, 1949. 1-877-528-8255 is toll-free throughout the U.S., Canada, Alaska, and Hawaii. Our email address is exxon at talkstarradio.com. On MSN Messenger, talkstarradio at hotmail.com. And our two websites, www.xzoneradio.com and www.xzonetv.com, where you can watch and listen to the show live from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Alex Kershaw is uh, the author of a very interesting book that talks about seven Americans who risked everything for someone else's freedom. And they did exactly that and saved the free world. All right, Alex, we were talking about the seven before we went to the commercial break. We were talking how one actually came back to the States in uniform. Um, What do we know about the other six? Um, 
They were a remarkable bunch. They had two things in common. Uh, number one, they were young and obsessed with flying. Uh, they'd grown up in the age of Amelia Earhart and Lindbergh, and this is the golden age of flight. Um, and they were convinced that America would eventually be drawn into the Second World War, and they wanted to do their part as fighter pilots. They didn't want to get drafted as a grunt and end up in a foxhole, say, in the Battle of the Bulge. Because they were experienced, in many cases, really experienced pilots, um, they thought, well, you know, this is my golden opportunity. The RAF are advertising, believe it or not. They were advertised all over the U.S. and Canada for pilots because they needed every single flyer they could get. And so these guys rationalized, and they thought, well, okay, I'm going I'm to accept this invitation from the RAF, go over there, fly with them, get trained, and then when America does join the conflict, I'll simply transfer to my own side. Unfortunately, um, as I said before, all but uh, one of them were killed by the time America joined the Second World War. They didn't get the chance to fight for their own side, um, which was, in a way, doubly tragic, because that's exactly why most of the, nearly all of them, in fact, had joined the RAF to fight in the Battle of Britain, was because they, they wanted to do their part for their own country, and they thought if they got in early, very early, then they would stand a very good chance of, uh, of being able to do that. I should add, without going on too long, but that um, it was almost impossible to become a military pilot in America in the late 1930s and early 40s before Pearl Harbor. Um, the U.S. Army Air Corps, it wasn't even an air force then, um, accepted almost nobody from uh, from from America into its ranks. Um, if you had t a couple of teeth missing, uh, any kind of physical defect, it didn't matter whether it impaired your flying or not, you you were out. And in fact, many of the guys that volunteered to fly for the RAF after the Battle of Britain, uh, after October of 1940, when the Battle of Britain was essentially over, most of those guys were rejects from the U.S. Army Air Corps. So you have the ultimate historical irony of the very men who were rejected by the U.S. Army Air Corps ended up becoming the most lethal fighter pilots in American history when they later were accepted into the U.S. Army Air Corps after Pearl Harbor. Now, Alex, so the fact that um, these seven Americans broke neutrality laws, they, they were outlaws, but were they mercenaries? Oh, they were definitely mercenaries as far as the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover were concerned and the, the, the State Department uh, in, in America were concerned, definitely. Um, they had broken laws and they were being paid, not very much, in fact, an absolute pittance mm -hmm. uh, by the RAF to, to fly uh, as, uh, as, as uh, fighter pilots in, 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 in combat. So, yes, strictly speaking, they were mercenaries. Um, um, but they didn't, they didn't go over to Britain um, thinking of themselves as mercenaries, as guns for hire, um, although that's in fact what they were in, uh, as far as some people were concerned. They went over thinking of themselves more as, as volunteers um, for the RAF um, at a time when the RAF needed all the pilots they could possibly get hold of. Uh, sure. they, they were more, more idealistic than... than it, there wasn't money that motivated them. It was, it was the, the notion that they would somehow be able to to um, do their part in the Second World War as pilots rather than as, as in the infantry or, or being drafted into some service they didn't want to belong to. 
It must have been rather exciting uh, to be in a dogfight in a 1940 Spitfire. Oh, it was incredible. Um, you have to remember that uh, during these dogfights, and these guys would uh, be in very intense dogfights three or four times a day, every day, week in, week out. Their average lifespan was about three weeks. Holy they God. didn't have any G-suits. Uh, so when you watch Top Gun and these other fighter pilot movies of recent uh, decades, you always see these guys in these suits which inflate when they have to make very steep turns or go into sharp dives. Uh, back in 1940, there was no such thing as a G-suit. So when you turn the airplane, you felt that they, the turn uh, with immense, um, uh, immense force on you um, to the point that um, many pilots, um, when they were interviewed and when they wrote their memoirs later on, talked about this point at which you started to gray out. You, if you turn the Spitfire too tight, um, then you'd start to lose consciousness and then literally a gray curtain would start to fall down across your eyes. And the really good pilots could judge it. They could make that turn so tight that they could keep that curtain from falling all the way down so they could stay conscious. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of pilots couldn't do that and they blacked out and crashed and died. Um, so it was very, very psychologically, physically, emotionally, it was the most intense dogfighting that's ever, ever, ever existed. Uh, there's, there's been nothing before or since to compare with being in a Spitfire above England in 1940 with a Messerschmitt on your tail. There was, there was nothing, there's nothing been, there's been nothing as, no greater buzz, if you like, no greater physical test uh, of a fighter pilot than the Battle of Britain. I know that you've done a, an extensive study on the, um, what it was like on the German side, and I was wondering if you could share the, those uh, those findings with us tonight. Well, I think it's important to remember that, you know, when, to understand the conflict, you have to look at both sides. Um, I think that often people um, see history through just one lens, which is the victor's lens, and I think that's, that's uh, um, dangerous, but I also think it's unfortunate because for example, in the Battle of Britain, the German side was, was very, very interesting. These guys were actually almost identical in their background and their their views about flying and their their camaraderie uh, to the to the British, to the um, to the the guys who won in the end. Um, both sides uh, were comprised mainly of young, middle-class, educated men who wanted to fly, and and the only way they could get to fly was to join um, an air force. Um, and the, the thing that struck me about the Battle of Britain and the German uh, participation in that battle was that there was a kind of code of honor which both the British and the Germans um, held to. Uh, there were a couple of things that they just didn't do. Um, this was before the kind of um, dehumanizing, all-out, total war that, in, that really sort of destroyed any sense of kind of... Uh, moral prerogative on either side in some ways um, you didn't shoot at a guy who was dangling from a, from a, a parachute that, that was just not done um, you didn't shoot at a guy who had landed his plane and, and crash landed and um, was stumbling out of the plane you didn't do that you didn't, didn't, you didn't attack when the enemy was defenseless um, that was just not done and uh, it's remarkable there's, there's hardly any example of uh, of either side breaking that kind of code of honor. Um, so when I interviewed Battle of Britain um, 
been in the Battle of Britain, um, they, 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 they only spoke with uh, respect of the other side. There wasn't this kind of hatred that you find uh, with uh, veterans of the Pacific War, for example, which was a very, very, very racist, brutal, dehumanizing conflict. Um, the Battle of Britain was about as gentlemanly a conflict as we've seen um, in the 20th century, uh, uh, to the point where the, some of the really outstanding British aces ended up um, visiting German, their German counterparts um, as early as the late 1940s, just a few years after the greatest war in human history. The guys who'd been shooting each other just a few years before were actually going and hunting spags and getting drunk together. Wow. Um, but that's how, how much respect they had for each other. Times certainly have changed. They certainly have. They certainly have. Um, it's, uh, it's remarkable. They, um, there was a, 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 a real sense of, um, of uh, mutual respect among these guys because literally the, it was one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, it was mm -hmm. uh, one guy's machine against another guy's machine. Um, it, it was about as fair a fight as you could get. The Messerschmitt uh, ME-109, which is the German plane, was a superb uh, airplane and was pretty much well matched against the Messerschmitt, the, um, sorry, the Spitfire that the, the British flew. Um, so it was really just a question of, you know, whether one guy could be smarter and have quicker reactions than the other. They certainly didn't have better weapons than each other, um, and they certainly weren't, uh, didn't have the advantage of numbers. That's right. Uh, it was one guy against the other in the sky, and uh, the best guy usually won. There were no infrared uh, target uh, sensors on the uh, on the missiles. Uh, there were no missiles back then, and it's it's funny because according to, from what I understand uh, about the present electronic warfare that uh, that they use in the air to these days, it's very rare that the enemy is seen. No, exactly. Yes, uh, and it's the op it was the opposite back in in 1940. Mm -hmm. um, you had to see the guy. You had to get pretty close to make to be able to guarantee the kill. You you had to be within around about 250 yards. Um, if possible, you wanted to get even closer, as close as possible, ideally. But you had to be around 250 yards away to stand the chance of, of shooting the other guy down. Which, if you compare that today with today, if uh, if you're 250 yards within any kind of object or, or the enemy, you, 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 it's a miracle and, you, and you're going to die very quickly. <laughs> um, but back then, you really had to get close because you, it was all about getting the guy in your sights. You had a, right. you had a, you had your gun sights and you had to get that message right in the middle. Um, and that was very hard to do unless you were very close. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the, uh, the German aces, Mulders and Galland. Uh, yeah, Mulders and Galland were um, the two uh, most glamorous and famous German aces from the Battle of Britain. They were actually were tied at the end of the Battle of Britain in uh, November of 1940. They were both tied on 50 kills each. They both killed um, 50 Allied planes. Um, and unlike on the British side, the Germans were very much into the kind of propaganda um, war. Um, they were, it was very much a contest to see which, which German ace could be the highest scoring pilot during the battle. Um, and there were several um, very, very skilled 
Ladies. Uh, in fact, Werner Moulders was a devout Catholic who um, was outspoken about the repression of the Catholic Church by the Nazis. His sister was a nun. Um, he was not well liked by the most vehement uh, Nazis at all. But he was a very, he was a very skilled pilot and a brilliant tactician. He reinvented in many ways the, the rules of air warfare, um, certainly of dogfighting, and, and couldn't be touched. Uh, he was so popular among the Luftwaffe pilots that uh, um, anybody that wanted to take him take him out of his position or to, to put throw him into uh, Dachau, which was filling up fast with German uh, generals and uh, politicians who didn't agree with Hitler then, they couldn't have done that because he was simply so valuable and, and popular. Adolf Galland actually um, survived the Second World War. He, um, believe it or not, died an old man uh, in his late 80s. Um, having flown the first fighter jet in the Second World War, the ME-262, in 1945. Wow. Uh, actually was shooting down Americans only a couple of days before the Second World War. So they were, they were some extraordinary characters. They were um, articulate, brilliant, um, uh, very, very, uh, had a very strict code of honor. Alex, please stand day. by. We have to take our final break for this hour. Alex Kershaw is our very special guest www.alexkershaw.com And still to come on tonight's show, we have Bruce McBurney talking about suppressed technology and Ellen from Premier Psychics will be doing psychic readings for one and all who give us a call at one 528 8255 My name is Rob McConnell and this is The X-Zone exclusively on the Talkstar Radio Network. Kershaw is our special guest, www.alexkershaw.com. And first of all, Alex, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us tonight. And to you and your family, the very best of the Christmas season and a wonderful New Year to you all. Oh, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. Alex, um, what what's the moral of your story? Um, I think uh, the moral is pretty simple, really. It's uh, that when a government tells its people not to go to war, mm-hmm. uh, we should question that government. And when a government tells you to go to war, we should also question that government. Give the power back to the people and let the people ask the questions that need to be answered. Uh, well, keep, keep governments accountable mm-hmm. and um, remember that governments do things in our name. And when they start wars, they should be responsible to the very people that uh, are going out there and dying. Uh, very often it's not the people that start the wars and send troops to 
abroad that do the sacrificing, they usually make the money, as is happening in America right now. They're making hand-over-fist money as working-class poor Americans go and die for a war that uh, um, the Republicans, and particularly the Bush administration, conned America into fighting. Last time you and I were talking, um, the few had been... Um had nom- been nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, and we were talking about that. It's also going to be made into a movie uh, starring Tom Cruise. So where does the movie uh, stand now with the book? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Tom Cruise, um, after his couch jumping episode on, on Oprah, <laughs> um, split up with the, the studio that uh, he was with, Paramount. So. Um, my my book was the victim of that 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 episode. Oh, as sorry well as to hear that. Projects. So I don't know what's going to happen. I I hope that uh, one day maybe someone will will do something because it's a really you know it's an inspirational story of of, of uh, very you know it's an exciting adventurous tale of, of of great bravery. So I don't know, but uh, at the very least, it's uh, it's out there as a book and people are enjoying it and, uh, and being and feeling inspired by it too. Alex, I want to thank you very much for joining us tonight. Alex Kershaw is the author of The Few. And if you'd like more information about Alex, his other works, including the widely acclaimed The Bedford Boys and The Longest Winter, please visit us his website at www.alexkershaw.com. When we come back from the news at the top of the hour at six and a half minutes past, I'll be joined by Bruce McBurney. We're going to be talking about suppressed technology. Bruce is a repairman, researcher, author, publisher, environmental crusader in suppressed fuel saving, and now also working in suppressed health technology. And Bruce will be with us. He is a Canadian. He lives in Niagara Falls, Ontario. One eight seven seven five two eight eight two five five is toll free. My name is Rob McConnell, and this is the X Zone, a place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard, live and around the world on the Talk Star Radio Network from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario. I'll be back after the news at six and a half minutes past as we continue investigating the world of the paranormal, the science of parapsychology, as well as conspiracies, specifically suppressed technologies. Merry Christmas, my friend!